Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, you guys may be seated. Well, how are you guys doing? You doing good? Well, my name is Matt. Glad to be here with you guys, and uh, we are... Studying a book of the Bible. Can anyone tell me what book of the Bible we're studying? Yes, just like the last 31 weeks now. Open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. That's in the New Testament. If you don't know that. So, book of Romans. All right, so book of Romans, 31 weeks. We learned a lot, 430 verses. Can someone please tell me what is the theme of the book of Romans? The righteousness of God. Can someone define what the word righteousness means? All right, let's pray. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, so the righteousness of God, that's what we've been learning about week in and week out. And I'm going to recap some of the stuff that we've discovered over 31 long weeks now. Now, before we hop into where I, where I want to go with you guys today, um, here's a question I want you guys to turn to discuss. I think I got a slide for this question. Is that right? No question? All right, the question is this. What is one of your favorite things about God's creation? What was something in the created world that left you awestruck? All right, was it a sunset? I don't know. Uh, we're looking into your girlfriend's eyes. I don't know what. What was something in the creator world that just left you awestruck, right? You were like, this is unbelievable. It was a thunderstorm. It was the Grand Canyon. It was whatever it was, all right? So I'm going to give you guys, uh, let's say, 30 seconds, turn, discuss, ready, set, go. Cool. All right, so for me, um, there's a few. My first time I saw the Grand Canyon, I was like, what? Like, this is, like, pictures do not do this thing justice, right? Raise your hand if you've been to the Grand Canyon. Raise your hand if you were impressed by the Grand Canyon. Raise your hand if you were not impressed by the Grand Canyon. You're colorblind or something. I don't know, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, another one was uh, we used to do a mission trip to Guatemala, and um, we took a bunch of high schoolers up there a handful of years ago, and we were on this mountain, uh, like this cliff, and there were four thunderstorms that were coming in from all around, you know, all around us, literally in every direction. Um, northeast, south, and west. Um, and uh, I just remembered thinking, like, this is unbelievable. Like, just the, the vastness of the created world around us and just the beauty of the Guatemala uh, jungle and just all of that, right? Um, maybe for you, it was on a mountaintop. Maybe it was you in the middle of the ocean. That was another thing. I remember going on a charter boat. I went on a three-day fishing trip off the coast of Mexico, about 140 miles off the coast. And I remember just looking into the vastness of the size of the world, right? Like, I was in sixth grade, and I couldn't see land in any direction. I was like, this is wild, right? The Bible says that God holds the universe basically in the palm of his hand. And I can't even see from, you know, like on, on a, I can't even see from one side of the ocean to the other. And God holds all things in the palm of his hands and sustains all things, right? That's just unbelievable, right? Um, but here's the crazy thing, right? Out of all the amazing things that this world has to offer us, the most amazing creation of God is you, right? That could be like on a greeting card, but uh, that's true, right? Like you are the God's masterpiece. When he, when he created the very best thing, it was you, and that's what scripture teaches us. And elsewhere in scripture, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says this. He says, for we are God's masterpiece. Yours, in other translations, handiwork. You are his art piece. Elsewhere in the book of Psalms, it says that God knit you together in your mother's womb, that he actually spent time fabricating who you are. And tonight, that's what we're going to spend a little time talking about, that God is like Michelangelo. He painted or crafted an image and picture of you and input certain natural gifts, and we're going to talk about something called spiritual gifts today. 
But I quickly just want to kind of talk about the wonder of our, let's say, our, uh, of our bodies, or at least our biology or our anatomy. Um, I read something earlier this week that said that if you took all of the blood vessels in our body and you lined them up end to end, just in one person, it would reach 100,000 miles. You're like, how, how far is that really? It would circumference the globe four times. If you took one strand of DNA, uncoded it, it would go to the moon and back at 12 aerial font. Here's a crazy thing. Um, we all know that like sharks, for some reason, uh, they could smell blood in water really well. Did you know if you go 48 hours without water, that your nose can sense where water is better than a, than a shark can a drop of blood in the ocean? This is crazy. I don't, I don't recommend, you know, just going on a, on a, like a, a thirst or a hunger, uh, don't drink water for 48 hours. But seriously, your nose, I don't know if this is evolutionary or whatever it is, you can sense and detect where water is better than a shark can detect where blood is in the water. Um, another interesting thing is you don't actually forget anything. Oh, it's just women. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, just kidding. <laughs> it's just my wife. Um, no, I'm just playing. Um, yeah, your, your, your uh, nose can detect one trillion cents. Our tongue is covered in 8,000 taste buds. On the, on the joke of you don't forget anything, um, this is actually funny. Um, when I was reading this, it said this is the reason that sometimes like when, you're, when you smell something, it brings back something. You can't sometimes really articulate. You think it's deja vu, whatever it is. Um, or maybe you have a certain smell, and you can't pinpoint it, because, but your mind knows you've had this, you've smelled this smell before, you've tasted this taste before, right? And you may not, and that's because in some file cabinet in your brain, you're not, you haven't actually forgot that. It's just difficult to access that information in that moment. Um, you produce over, kind of gross, 12,000 gallons of spit in your life. Ew. Um, and uh, science doesn't know why we yawn. But God does. So over the last 30 weeks, we've, uh, we've learned a lot about a handful of things. We've learned a lot about, um, about us, mankind. We've, learned, we've talked a lot about, about God himself, who God is. Remember, if, you were, if this is your first uh, introduction to young adults in the book of Romans, well, welcome. I'm your tour guide. My name's Matt. But Romans chapter 11, uh, or 1 through 11, is really theology. Now, if you're new to what theology is, theos, God, ology, study of. Biology would be bios, life, ology, study of, right? So theos is the study of God. Paul spends 11 long chapters teaching you and teaching uh, all of us who God is, what he's like, what his personality is like. And he teaches us some uh, uh, truths about um, God being good, God being holy, God being righteous. And then he teaches us some unfortunate news in, Ro- in Romans chapter 3. He says, you're not good, you're not holy, and in your own right, you're not righteous. In other words, you cannot be right with God in your own power. But then he teaches us some good news as we progress in the chapters, more towards chapter six. He teaches us things like we can discover a righteousness, uh, an ability to be right with God, not by your own works, but by the work of Jesus. And we learned about this word, if you remember, it was called imputation. It was that you and I can have something called imputed righteousness, given, transferred, accredited to our account. And now what was true of Jesus, he was in a right standing with God the Father, And we were over here not in a right standing with God the Father because our faith can be the transfer. Well, what was true of him now becomes true of us. And the Bible says, for he who knew no sin was treated like sin so that we could become the righteousness of God is what Scripture teaches us. Or in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if if we confess our sin, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that's what we've been discovering over the last handful of weeks. Then we got to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 last week, only two verses. And in it, Paul talks a lot, a lot, and it's kind of Romans chapters 1 through 11, all the theology, and then he goes kind of into this section of walkology. In light of all the stuff you just learned, this then is how you should live. In fact, he starts Romans chapter 12 with these words, therefore, and I want you to be a nerd, so you got to put your glasses and pocket protector on. Whenever you hear the words therefore in scripture, it means in light of what you've just read, 11 chapters, 30 weeks. 
It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Then in chapter two, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As we talked about last week, so you can attest and approve what God's perfect, pleasing, perfect will is. That segues us up to where we're going to be in today, which is chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And Paul wants to inform us that after all of the stuff we've just talked about, God has created each one of you guys on purpose and for a purpose. Every single person in this room, God's created on purpose and for a purpose. You are not an accident by any means. But there's another thing that Paul wants to be impertinent that we understand, and that's that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and that's the if, that you start to live out your new identity in Christ. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter said this, and he gives us some labels to understand who we now are in Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellence of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, something so interesting, I said this last week, that, um, or maybe one of the weeks, that uh, you know the words remember are more prevalent in scripture than the world believe and obey? I'm gonna say this again. The word remember is more prevalent throughout the 66 books of the Bible than the words believe and obey. You would think to this whole Jesus following thing, obey and believe are some pretty important words. Believe this and now obey it. But the word remember is more prevalent in scripture. Why? God wants so often in scriptures, so illuminating to this idea that God wants to remind his children, people who have confessed faith in Jesus Christ, that he has given us a new identity and as we remember this new identity, it empowers us to live in freedom, joy, and a sense of purpose and direction. So identity is important to what we're going to talk about today, about gifts and purpose and all of that type of stuff. In the early 1970s, a social scientist named Philip Zimbardo, he led a team of scientists from Stanford University in this interesting experience. And if you uh, studied psychology in school, most likely you studied, it was called the Lucifer Effect. But really what it was, it was a, an illumination on how fragile identities can actually be. And so the team built a mock prison in the basement of the university psychology department, took over the entire basement and literally built what looked like a mock prison, metal bars, cameras, speakers, all of it, right? Then the scientists placed advertisements in all the local newspapers to get people that would participate in the experiment for $1,000 a week. And in the 70s, you're balling, right? Now it's like a pack of gum. Anyway, Zimbardo um, and his colleagues selected 24 of the, uh, the people to participate, and they chose the ones that seemed to be the em most emotionally stable, you know? Like, you weren't going to try to put, like, a Karen in there. They're a meltdown day one, right? So they tried to find somebody emotionally stable. I don't know the metrics that they determined who was going to be stable and who was not, but they found them. Now, half of the group was just randomly selected. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. they were going to be the prison guards. And so they were given guard uniforms. They weren't given weapons because that probably wouldn't turn well. But uh, they were given those dark glasses like CIA agents and little, you know, whatever. And so these people were given everything they needed to act like they were uh, uh, guards. And then they were told one thing. It is your responsibility for one week's time. You're not allowed to go home. This is where you live for the next week. Your responsibility to keep order in this prison. The other half... They obviously became the prisoners, and they were, uh, weirdly enough, arrested in their homes, dragged over to a real police station, handcuffed and fingerprinted, and then escorted in new clothes over to the mock prison. Then they were stripped of their names. Your name was no longer Adam, it's one. Your, your, your name is no longer Eve, it's two, whatever, right? All the way up to 12 people. And something interesting, the prisoners, they said that once their name was taken from them, they kind of lost all sense of identity. Like, they were only able to call themselves by the numbers in which they got, 
which is kind of like a like stranger thing. I think like the little girl, she's called like 13 or something, right? Um, or even in uh, the Holocaust, they stripped people of their name and they literally just gave them numbers and they had to remember this barcode uh, and that was their new identity and their new name. So anyways, um, in the post interviews, uh, they, they said that when, the name, when their name was taken from them, they felt like they were one, stripped of an identity, and two, they felt completely helpless and hopeless. Four of the prisoners um, from the experiment had to be pulled because of emotional breakdowns of anxiety and rage and a plethora of other things. And other prisoners incited uh, rebellions, riots against the guard. I'm going to read you from what the article says. It says, when the mock prisoners forgot who they were, their identities, they became depressed and anxious. Their self-perception of who they were now impacted their thinking, attitude, and ultimately their behavior. See, when they believed they were criminals, they acted like criminals. It says the experiment only lasted two weeks, or it was supposed to last two weeks, but Zimbardo shut it down after six days because of the chaos that was ensuing. Quote, when he was dismissing some of the mock prisoners, he needed to constantly remind them that they were not prisoners. That's not who they actually were. Wow, these are healthy individuals. They just went under a mock prison for a week and completely got, forgot who they were. Unfortunately, I think many Christians have forgotten their identity in Christ too and live in the bondage of their old life and their old habits and their old addictions and whatever it may be and they never live in the power of the Spirit to live supernaturally changed lives. It is impossible to live life for God without God. You will constantly allow the world to rename you, to give you a different identity. You know, in the Christmas story, there's a really interesting encounter. This isn't in my notes, but it's an extra. I won't charge you for it. Um, Something interesting happens in the Christmas story. In ancient Judaism, it was the father of the household's primary responsibility to name their son or their daughter. It was given to the man of the house, in some sense of the way, to name their son or daughter. It was seen as them implanting destiny and hope and fulfillment in a future. If you read the Christmas narrative, the angel pops up to Joseph and says, you are to give him the name Jesus. Now, if you read that, and you've heard pastors talk about it, we kind of glance right over it, right? It doesn't really like... It says, you were to give him the name Jesus. What is the angel doing here? He's saying, you do not name Jesus, he names you. He's the one that gives you a future. He's the one that gives you a sense of identity. He's the one that's gonna give you a sense of direction in your life. You do not, he, you do not come into his life with a sense of authority. He is to come into your life with a sense of an, a, authority. He is to implant an identity to you. The world wants you to achieve an identity when Christ wants you to receive an identity. That's primarily the difference between the two, and I wish we had more time to talk about it. But today, Paul wants to teach you, remind you who you are in Christ and what role God has for you in his kingdom, and that all begins with things called spiritual gifts. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and I know there's probably a group of people here tonight that aren't believers in Jesus, welcome, I'm glad you're here. But this specific part of our talk is primarily to believers, and if you are a believer, then God in Scripture has said that he has given you something called supernatural gifts, that he has implanted gifts inside you and inside me by his spirit that to, our, to enable you and I to bring God's kingdom forward, right? To, to, in some sense of the way, by natural default, all people live hell up. But empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can live heaven down. Well, we can bring moments of heaven into our lives today. And that's, that, that's what he's talking about when it comes to spiritual gifts and why there's an importance of it being operated in the church today. And so that's where we're headed today. I want you to grab our Bibles, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. We're only doing a handful of verses today. It says, for by the grace, some translations say gift, given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of, highly more, think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with highlight sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So right out of the gate, Peter tells us that we need to have sober judgment. What's the opposite of sober judgment? Friday night. No, I'm just kidding. But like, uh, when you think about it, right, 
The idea of sober judgment and why he is pertinent to understanding spiritual gifts, the renewing of a mind, like Romans 12, 2 says, is because only in a sense of sober-mindedness is there a sense of discernment and a sense of coherence, right? I'll make this make sense. No one in the history of the world has ever said, man, I got a big test tomorrow, I better come drunk. Why? Why has no one ever said, like, oh, I got to appear in court? It'd be great if the judge saw me hammered. Why has no one ever said that? Because when you're not of sober mind through drug or through alcohol, right, you lack discernment and coherence. How do I know this? I spent most of high school drunk, right? So I can be the first to tell you, you lose your sense of discernment and, 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 and place in the world. See, only a sound mind is going to discover a sense of purpose and develop purpose. So this is why this next idea of what Paul's going to talk about is, is really important, but let me kind of give you some context first. By the way, I'm not really giving sermons. That's going to come later in your guys' groups. I'm just going to give you exegetical teaching. Here's what commentaries and theologians are saying about the text. You're going to do an activity today that I hope is going to be really applicable. But the next thing that Paul wants us to know is this, that, that the gospel really is the only thing that's going to make you think rightly of yourself. St. Augustine, years ago, he said that he coined this thing called double knowledge. It's the more that you understand God, the greater self-awareness that you're going to have of yourself. When you understand your creator appropriately, you'll understand its creation and all that it's in it, right? And so the gospel is really one of the only things that allows us to see the world around us correctly and ourselves correctly. We're not going to think too highly of ourselves. We're not going to think too lowly of ourselves. It all begins with it was an act of God's grace that saved you and I from an eternity away from him. And then it teaches you and I like a really difficult lesson that in the self-help era that we live in today, we don't like to hear. And that is simply that you can't make life work on your own. You can't. And that you can't get to God. The mountain is too high. The valley is too far. That you and your own power cannot give yourself a sense of righteousness. And it's really that approach that Paul wants you and I to understand. It's that approach to life that because we're dependent on God's grace to save you, we need to now be dependent on God's grace to sustain us each and every single day. Now, on the flip side of all of this, of that reality, I guess I'll say, it's that the gospel also wants you not to think too lowly of yourself. Like Christians shouldn't be people with low self-esteem and to wallow in ourselves. Why? Because first, we learn that there's a great God that loves you greatly. Second, we learn that he has put his spirit in you and then designed you a very specific and unique way with certain gifts, and he has a role for you to play in his kingdom. See, the gospel overturns both our pride and despair and shows us that both our pride and our despair comes from the same place which is simply focusing on ourselves and what we can do instead of what God can do through us and how he can empower us to do some incredible things in our lives. Go with me to verse four and five. It says this, for as in one body we have many members and members do not have all the same function. So we through many are one body in Christ and individual members one of another. So if you want an image, and by the way, the body is the, is the number one illustration that Paul uses for what the church looks like. And so if you want an idea of what the church looks like, you just need to look in the mirror. Our bodies have different, let's say, extremities, right? And, and you have fingers and toes, and you have feet and, and legs and arms, and you have a head, and you have a heart, and you have a brain, and you have different organs that all do different things in, in some sense of the way. They are all interconnected. You cannot separate one body part from the other. In fact, if one body part gets damaged, the other body parts will, like, I'll give you an example. So I broke my hand the other day, and uh, I break it like once every year. Uh, I was... A few months ago, I was up at this ranch, and we were riding some like quads and UTVs and whatever on the, on the trail. And so I had to clear the trail, and so I was with a chainsaw picking up branches, whatever. And I, I had this branch, and I'm walking backwards. I slip, I fall, I break my hand. Sick. Um, and then the other day, and this is what happens when you get 30, I'm out here on Wednesday night playing football with a bunch of kids, and I'm tossing the football from here into the hoop, whatever. And uh, like on the 30th throw, I'd hear a pop. 
And I was like, sick, welcome to 30. And so my hand's all damaged, right? And it like, kind of hurts still. I'm wearing a brace normally, but I thought it'd be weird for me to have a brace up here. But you're like, uh, and so even though my hand hurts, I have to wear this brace because it'll wake me out of my sleep. Like if I, if I don't wear this brace, this little like, you know, like Walgreens brace or whatever it is, I'll like roll over on it, boom, and the pain will wake me up at night, right? See, although one of the body parts is damaged, the rest of the body feels it. The same as with an infection. If I get an infection in my foot or something like that and it's not treated very quickly, it's gonna spread to the rest of my body. Here's the point of all of this. God does not see denominations, church names, and church locations. He sees one, I'll say it this way, all believers, if they are in the Orthodox Church, that means that they believe Jesus as he has revealed himself in Scripture, he sees all of us as one unified, connected body. Here's why this is important. I remember growing up, and my dad was an atheist, my mom was a Christian, and uh, I would say things were like, yeah, I mean, I like Jesus and stuff, but like, I don't like church. Or I don't, I don't like going to church. In fact, I don't think I need to go to church, right? And that's a silly and stupid thing to say because God has designed faith in such a way that we need each other, like a body. Think of it this way. There is nothing more helpless and hopeless than a disconnected body part. If you don't believe me, go home and chop off a finger and see what happens to it. What happens to a body part when it gets cut off from the rest of the body? What happens? It shrivels up, dies immediately, right? I'm going to say this clearly so you understand this, and so it's offensive, so you can write Yelp reviews about me. That's the future of a disconnected believer, shriveled up and dead because you're not connected to the whole body. It's even worse than that. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, be sober-minded to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You guys ever watched like the Nature Channel and found out the way that lions attack? I was uh, in Africa a handful of years ago and um, we went on a safari and um, we got to see like literally a lion attack a, a herd of, of animals. And it was wild to see, right? And one of the observations that I made, whether you watch on, the pl- uh, on TV or in real life, is that the lions are always trying to take the prey and they're finding the ones on the outskirt of the pack. In other words, the one that's isolated from the others and then they attack. Here's the point of all this. Ever wonder why life gets messy and your sin becomes more enticing during seasons that you take a break from the church? When you got into that relationship with that guy and girl and then you stopped coming to church because he or she became your savior and no longer Jesus? It's because isolation and disconnection create the death of your faith. I don't know if this is theologically true, but we're going with it. I think there's, this, there's a category potentially of a Christian where you may have a saved soul, but you live a lost life. Like, you may end up in heaven one day, but here on earth, you are just, you have no idea. Why did God create me? What are my gifts? Who am I supposed to be? I think it's a terrible existence. Well, you may have a saved soul, but you live a lost life. God created you on purpose and for a purpose. And you're not saved by good works, you're saved for good works. God has good things he wants you and I to accomplish. Go with me to verse six. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. I want to spend this little time here because I think like there's a lot of churches that um, teach prophecy in a really weird and unbiblical way. Uh, let me give you a few thoughts here on what this really means. Prophecy has different meanings in scripture. Sometimes it means speaking the very words of God, um, like if you're directing the words of the Bible firsthand. So it was Peter, it was John, it was you know, Matthew, it was Mark, it was the people that wrote down, um, it was Paul, it was the people that wrote down scripture. They're saying new revelation that no one else has heard from God. The Bible says no one has that gift anymore. In fact, uh, go with me to the book of Revelations, uh, Revelations 22, verse 18. 
I believe that's right. Yeah, it is. Okay. It says this. I'll give you a second to get there. If you don't know what Revelations is, last book. Literally the last page of your Bible. I don't know who said that. But you're welcome. Uh, here's how we know prophecy. All right, if you're Jehovah's Witness um, or you're Mormon, um, listen carefully. <laughs> uh, no new prophecy is giving. A prophecy is new revelation from God. It says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. Jehovah Witnesses, they have, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, James Taz Russell um, in the Washington Magazine that he got a revelation of God. Mormons in like the 1800s, Joseph Smith got this revelation from God. This is literally telling you, hey, look, there's gonna be no new revelation. So anyone that gives new revelation they're going to hell, is literally what it says. That their share of being in heaven is gone. That's some pretty intense stuff. So prophecy is obviously not going to operate in that way. So let me tell you how prophecy does operate. Oftentimes, it could be a pastor like me speaking on a stage, telling you what God's word already says. I'm not giving you new revelation. I'm telling you it was already written. The last way is ways that you may have experienced it. And they're called words of knowledge. Have you ever been, and this is obviously just for believers, but this happens often with me as a pastor. I'll be either giving a sermon or I'll be personally having a conversation with somebody. And the whole time I'm just asking, God, would you use me? Would you equip me? Would you give me discernment and wisdom and knowledge? Anything, Lord God, that I need to navigate or at least direct this person closer to you. And so I start either saying something that's outside of my scope of knowledge to know that's meeting this person in the exact circumstances that they're in. Or have you ever been at a church and the pastor's giving a message and it's like, this was written for me. The pastor didn't, he wasn't on Instagram thinking like, okay, she needs to hear this. That's not, that's not what happened. It was that that's a word of knowledge. God in that moment via the Holy Spirit is equipping that pastor or that person to divinely and directly speak to you to move you on in faith. And those moments that God has for all of us, like that prophetic type of word of knowledge is for all believers because the reality of this is that Christianity is a supernatural faith. You have the spirit of God that lives inside you. Go with me the last few years. It says this, if service in our serving what's serving, meaning people's physical needs, then the one who teaches in his teaching, teaching simply is explaining doctrine and truth, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Exhortation is different than teaching, by the way. Um, uh, teaching would be like what a Biola professor does um, and kind of what I've done a lot for this series. Uh, exhortation is a call to obedience. It's in light of what we've just learned, apply it now to your life. Uh, the one who cont uh, contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does not act of who does act of mercy with cheerfulness. So I want to make this applicable for you. So here's how we'll end this, and I'll get you guys in the groups. I realize that there are so many of us in this room that if I were to ask you what's your purpose, you go like, uh, to get grades in college right now, <laughs> uh, to make mom and dad proud. Um, not, not all bad answers by any means, right? I was talking to my wife about what I was going to uh, talk with you guys today about, and um, and I was like, I'm kind of like struggling about this message. You know, like, how do I make it applicable? Like, all the different spiritual gifts that there are, whatever. And she said, well, and she gave me this brilliant phrase. She goes, if you don't know your purpose in life, start by discovering and developing your spiritual gifts. And then she went into a story. She said that um, she went to Biola, and she got her degree in intercultural studies. She thought she was going to be a missionary. And um, in college, uh, her mission field was Paris. Like, uh, rough. Um, I guess the crepes were rough. Yeah, she didn't go to Africa, Guatemala, or India. She went to Paris. All right, uh, perfect. Um, and so, uh, you know, so she thought, you know, God's going to call her to the mission field. And uh, 
what, what, she didn't really know what that looked like, but she just felt that call in her life. So she got a whole degree in it. And then around her senior year, she took a spirit, spiritual assessment gifts test that listed out 14 or 16, depending on the scripture that you use, different types of spiritual gifts. And she scored highest in administration. She didn't even know that was a spiritual gift, that God could supernaturally implant a gift of organization in somebody. Now, if you fast forward a handful of years, what does my wife do at Seacoast? Well, she first started in missions, and she was responsible for the, all the missions that happened at our church. And now she's responsible for every employee that we have. She's responsible for all of the payroll, all of the admin that goes on our entire campus, and all the employees, and all the budgets, and all the stuff that goes with that. It all came from, many years ago, her getting the same test that I just handed you tonight, scoring it, and asking God, what is it that you want me to do with what I've scored highest in, in the top three things? And the top three things, I don't remember the last two, but in her, in her job now, the primary gift set that she's required and using are the top three things she's scored on a test her senior year of college. So I'm gonna ask you a question. Do you know right now, could you identify what your spiritual gifts are? And the answer to that question is probably not. And that's totally okay. And so tonight, what I wanna do is I wanna help you discover these gifts. Here's why this is important for you and I. Your Christian life will not blossom until you understand uniquely how the Holy Spirit has gifted you spiritually. The idea of the church is a bunch of different people that come together, united under their belief in Jesus, bringing their gifts to make the church a better place by bringing a living Jesus to a dying world. On, um, on July 4th, uh, my wife and I, we had this idea that we wanted to um, invite all the young adult staff that work at Seacoast, uh, young adults meaning they're below the age of 30 and they work in whatever department at our church, not in young adults specifically. I think there's 30 or so, and so we invited them over to our house just for, you know, 4th of July party. Partly because I live in Buena Park and it gets buck wild on the 4th of July, but also just like wanted to like, you know, have, uh, I just wanted to create outside relationships, you know, like not just be their boss or whatever it was, right? And so I just wanted to create different types of relationships with people. And so um, Rob and I, we were on the grill and we made, you know, burgers and hot dogs and a bunch of other stuff like that. And then we tasked everyone else to, um, to, to bring something, whatever it was, a dessert, an appetizer, whatever. And uh, everyone brought something to the party and it made it that much better. And I think this is the idea, really, of kind of what the church is supposed to be like, that we all bring unique gifts to use for the betterment of the lives of those that are around us, right? Like, that's kind of what we're supposed to be doing here. We all have unique individual gifts. We collectively come together, and God has organized all of this where he goes, that person needs this gift, that person needs that gift, that person needs that gift so that they can all operate as a body together. So your billion-dollar question is this. Okay, Matt, how, do I, how can I discern, how can I tell and identify, rather discover what my spiritual gifts are? I'm gonna give you four things today that I think are gonna be helpful. Um, that's helped me out, it's helped my wife out, and it's helped a billion other people out, all right? So the first is affinity. And they all start with an A because I'm a pastor. Um, affinity. Um, this is what you're passionate about, right? Like what causes your heart to like be filled with joy? Right, I'll tell you what doesn't fill my heart with joy. Admin. I hate it. My wife has like our vacations planned. She's got like, all right, nine o'clock, we're doing this. At 9.06, we should be here. I'm like, relax. Uh, right, like what admin in my personal life and professional life, I hate doing. But what fills your heart? What causes your, your, your heart to be uh, filled with joy and love and all that type of stuff? Also, what needs are you drawn to? What kind of ministry fills your heart in, in some capacity in some way? Now, for many of you, this will actually cause you to reflect on past experiences that may be helpful. I know that God has allowed some of you guys to go through some really painful things. It could be divorced parents. It could be the loss of a loved one, um, the loss of a job. You didn't get into the college you want. Whatever, whatever the, the experience that you've gone through, um, God's maybe allowed you to go through that so you can minister to others. 
I know Christians who have gone through some things in their lives that's now enabled them to be uniquely gifted to minister to those people in the same situations. So my parents were alcoholics growing up, right? And uh, my dad, it took his life eventually. I can't tell you how many kids I've come across as a youth pastor over, over a decade in this room that I've come across and had the ability to speak directly into their lives in a way that someone else didn't. But you have a different story and you can speak directly into the lives of somebody else because your makeup and blueprint's different than mine. So the first one's affinity, the second one's ability. What are you good at? Like, what are you naturally good at? It's more than sports, I promise you, right? But like, naturally, what are you good at? So affinity, ability, and the last one's affirmation. This is where people affirm you. Here's another thing. Well, I'll hold that for the land. Yeah, how are people saying, wow, you're really good at, you know when you do, I'll give you an example of this. So this last week, I was meeting with some of the employees um, at Seacoast, and I was doing a, an employee chart, one, three, and five years. Who do you want to be in one year's time? What competencies do you need to develop? And one of the people I was meeting with was Kaylin. And we were identifying certain gifts that she has, competencies, things along those lines. She currently works in junior high. She's helping out young adults as well. And I affirmed in something her that she, I think, has um, the gift of aesthetic design in some sense of the way. Like, she knows what just looks good, whether it be on graphics, whether it be on chalkboards, or in environments, whatever it is, right? That's someone outside of her family, that's someone outside of, of, of her that's identifying a gift that she has. And I, I do this with, I try to do this with all my employees. I see a gift that they have or whatever. Um, how has somebody actively affirmed you? Now look, if no one's affirming you, at least identifying spiritual gifts that you potentially have, it could be because you're not actively involved in the church or people to identify them, which is a whole other issue that we could talk about at a different time. But God gave us the church to see what we can't see in ourselves. It's one of the primary reasons that God had brought a, a bunch of different people together that are all ununited under one faith, but they have different backgrounds and things like that, right? I can see something in someone that they can't see in themselves, and they can see something in me that I don't see in myself. They can also help me identify weaknesses, but they can also help me identify strengths, right? Here's the next thing I'm going to say, maybe the last thing. All spiritual gifts are primarily revealed through serving at the church, it is in serving, in God's mission, that he reveals to you how he's equipped you specifically for that good work. I'm going to say this again because it's pertinent. You will never identify your spiritual gift in isolation. It is in serving in God's mission that he reveals to you how he's equipped you specifically for the good work of whatever the mission it is that he put before you. And so if you're running around trying to identify what your gifts are, and you're not involved in the life of a church, it's not that you maybe don't have them, it's that you're not going to be able to identify them, discover them, or develop them. Because the way in which God reveals these things to you, prayer and fasting, but primarily getting involved in the church. And so today, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to help identify what your spiritual gifts are. I started this process at around your age, um, or rather, I was 18, 19, or 20. Um, and I want to help you guys do this. It's been helpful for me as charting a future for myself. It was obviously helpful for my wife. I want to be helpful for you guys. So when you guys got here today, you guys should have been getting a spiritual gift survey. It's 80 questions. We're going to do a survey, though. Not that survey. We're going to do a different survey. If you guys want to do this now or you guys can do it later. So I can give you 10 minutes to do it now. I think we have some pens for you guys. And if not, maybe you have one for yourself. Um, and then I'll give you guys, it should take, should take 10 minutes. Raise your hand if this is something you want to do now or you can take it home with you. Raise your hand if you want to do it now. I won't be hurt, guys. I promise you. You have questions. Okay, cool. That's the majority of you guys. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you guys 10 minutes first to complete that, that little survey that you have. It's any questions. Go through it really quick. Whatever your first thing is, do that, all right? Then at the end of that 10 minutes, I'm going to let you guys go into your groups. Ready, set, go. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.